you're listening to a sermon podcast from Lawson Heights Alliance Church. May God bless you as you listen. Well, you know, a while ago, uh, my wife Bonnie, uh, she loves it when I talk about her on Sunday mornings, by the way, uh, but my wife Bonnie... Um, uh, it was one of those days where she was told by her work that she didn't need to come in uh, because there wasn't enough work for her at the shop. And so uh, she wasn't fired. It just was, you know, since COVID, things have become real slow for the print business. Uh, so that meant that she got to tackle all the things, all the work around the house that she felt she was behind in. Guys, have you ever come home at the end of a day and have asked your wife what she's been doing all day? I think you might try that once, maybe forget and ask that twice, but most husbands figure out pretty early in married life that you never ask your wife that question. But when I came home that day, I didn't have to. I didn't have to ask my wife what she'd been doing. Uh, I had already seen that supper was being made as I walked in the door. She had already cleaned the windows inside and out, and she baked some muffins. She baked some chocolate chip banana loaves, gluten-free, but also gluten-full. Yeah, it was good. She'd uh, also been outside to, uh, and do some stuff around the house outside. She'd set up decorations and cleaned up that way. Uh, she had done the laundry. I went to get the socks for my workout, and my sock drawer was full. Every drawer in my, my uh, dresser was full. T-shirts, underwear, everything, full right up. And she cleaned the whole house stra- straight through. There was no place left where she hadn't cleaned up. Now, I'm sure she probably felt a little good about that, but when I tried to acknowledge her, guess what her response was? A regret that she wasn't able to do even more, right? So that's what we find here today with our missionary in the day and the life of a missionary series. Our missionary today is the Apostle Paul, and it's hard to tell by Romans uh, 15 whether or not he's frustrated or he's ambitious, probably a mix of both. We're also in this missions month, and this last weekend, as I said, was our Saskatoon Global uh, Alliance Global Advance weekend, and uh, at different locations throughout the city, you got to hear how God was moving through the Christian Missionary Alliance and our, our international workers, what we used to call missionaries. And yet, for all the work that our missionaries have already done, each of our missionaries deeply wish that they would be able to do more, that they could have done more by now to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. And as we've discovered, you and I, even though we haven't gone to serve as missionaries overseas to another continent, to another culture, we realize from God's word that we are called to be missionaries to our own life network, don't we? You and I are surrounded by people everywhere we go and everywhere we live, people who have not yet heard of the good news of Jesus. And looking at your life network, don't you wish that you could have done more there so far in getting the gospel to those people? Of course you do. We all do. Well, the Apostle Paul, looking back on everything he's done to get the gospel to the Gentile nations, because he was the apostle to the Gentiles, but he's voicing some regrets in the chapter that we're going to read from. Regrets that he could have done some more work. So turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 15. Romans 15, 21 to 29. All right, you there? Romans 15, 21 to 29. And I know it's always up here. Uh, Pastor loves to see people bring their Bibles to church. 
And if you don't have a Bible, please feel free to take one of the ones in the pew in front of you. We'd be glad that you just took that home and made it your own. Okay, you ready? Verse 21 to 29. As it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through, and I have you uh, and have to and ha- and to have you assist me on my journey. Sorry. There, after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do so, and indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full assurance of the blessing of Christ. I love that. The Apostle Paul is telling these Roman Christians that even though he's just going to be passing through, that he can't wait to spend some time with them. But what's he passing through from? Well, as you look at the map above me here, you will see that Paul is writing this letter to the Romans in Corinth, which is in modern-day Greece. This is part of his third missionary journey. He started his journey in Antioch of Syria, north of Jerusalem, and he's made his way west. Traveling through Galatia and Phrygia in Asia Minor, he visited churches that he'd planted before in Derbe and Lystra, Iconium, Pisidian Antioch, and churches that he'd established during his other missionary journeys. When Paul arrives in Ephesus, it's a city of about 300,000 people, large city for the day, and he met 12 of John the Baptist's disciples there. They hadn't heard of the Holy Spirit yet, meaning they hadn't heard that Pentecost happened. We talked about that last week, and so if you missed last week's message, I encourage you to pick up any of your favorite podcast apps and, or go onto our website, and you'll find it there. We talked about this last week, and seeing as how they hadn't heard of Pentecost yet, he lays hands on them to receive the Holy Spirit, and then he does something very special. He, he spends, well, not special, it did it everywhere he went. He spends the next little while discipling them, training them in evangelism and church planting, And then it tells us in Acts chapter 19 that after three years of doing this, like Bonnie cleaning up the house, there was no place left in all of Asia where the gospel had not been heard. Three years for all those people. But Paul is then forced out of Ephesus. And he goes about, goes across the Aegean Sea to Philippi, to Thessalonica, to the Bereans in Macedonia, and he encourages the churches there. After that, he goes to Corinth in Greece, and he's there now writing this letter to the church in Rome. It's about AD 57. And here in Acts 15, Paul tells the church in Rome that it's his intention to visit them, which, if you sail across the Adriatic Sea, it's about a 1,200-kilometer journey. But first, he has to go all the way back east to Jerusalem, 
to, the, to visit the sending church, which was the first church that was born in Pente- at Pentecost in Jerusalem. And the reason for this trip was to bring the offering he'd been collecting from some of the Gentile churches that he's planted. See, the church in Jerusalem was under a great deal of pressure in those days from the Roman government. The entire area around the Mediterranean was occupied by the Romans. They are a vast empire. But the church in Jerusalem was especially impacted. But not only that, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem had grown jealous of the Gentile Christians who were coming to Jesus like crazy. In all the places that Paul and the other apostles traveled around the Mediterranean, many Gentiles, when they came to faith in Christ, felt it important to make a pilgrimage back to Jerusalem. I mean, Jerusalem was, in their hearts, the city of God. That's where it all started, and they wanted to kind of feel that for themselves. I mean, that's where the church was born, right? And as a result, they got a large number of the poor in Jerusalem, people who were homeless, who had nothing to eat, or they just came on pilgrimage, and the church in Jerusalem felt responsible for them. Well, this created a lot of strife in Jerusalem, especially between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, but also just among the general Jewish population against the church. It was such a problem that the Roman Emperor Claudius noticed it, and he decided to expel the Jews out of Jerusalem, thinking that would solve the problem. So Paul hoped that this financial gift that he was collecting was going to be able to help the church in Jerusalem to kind of offset the burden. But I also think Paul was kind of maybe wanting to rub their noses in it a little bit, you know. If you read Romans 11, if you go back a couple of chapters, chapter 11, verse 13 to 14 says, Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles... I make much of my ministry in hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. So well after after he finally gets back to Jerusalem, Paul says that he's planning a short visit to go back to Rome. He's there, he's got this ambition to go even further west to evangelize Spain. Now that's a huge trip. In total, it's going to be about an 8,300 kilometer walking trip, right? They didn't have the car or buses or, or planes. But as a crow flies from Jerusalem to west to east again to Jerusalem, then back again through to Rome, that's a long trip. That'd be like you and I walking from Saskatoon to Miami, Florida, and back again. According to Google Maps, that would take you about 72 straight hours or straight days without sleeps and potty breaks and talking to churches along the way. That's a long trip to walk, isn't it? Paul probably could have gotten some good contracts from Nike or Adidas or something by doing that. So why was Paul wanting to go to Spain? Well, remember that Christianity was born in Jerusalem, but it spread. It spread rapidly. And the apostles ventured out from Jerusalem and they spread the gospel everywhere they traveled. Paul kind of specialized in Gentile people, non-Jewish people. And they spread the gospel everywhere they traveled and they discipled people and they planted churches. And after going through Ephesus, a city, as I said, about 300,000 people, Paul was able to say after that there was no place left in all of Asia that had not heard yet the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the entire area of modern-day Turkey today. Now, writing in Corinth, Paul says, verse 23, but now that there is no place for me to work in these regions, 
I now plan to go to Spain. In other words, like my wife, he'd covered the entire house. Judea, Syria, Turkey, Greece, and Italy. And in a 20-year period from his own conversion to now in Corinth, Paul had saturated all the regions that he had been to with the gospel, and now there was no place for him to work except Spain. So he set his ambition for Spain. That's more than a day in the life of a missionary, isn't it? That's 20 years, every day, every night, doing the work that Jesus did. But you have to understand something very important here. We get this idea that Paul is a super saint, but Paul did not do this alone. He didn't do it alone. There were other apostles out doing the same thing, but we also read in chapter 16 of the book of Romans, and then at the end of every chapter, of every, or at the end of every letter that Paul ever wrote, he is in there in the New Testament. He's thanking, he's recognizing people who joined him in the work of discipling those cities and bringing people to faith in Christ. Ordinary people who, were, who would just continue the work of making disciples and planting churches in those areas even after Paul left. That's every new church plant of Paul owning Jesus' job description as their own job description, like we talked about last week. That's every disciple of Paul's realizing that the missionary job description is doable only by staying dependent on the Father and being indwelt then by the Holy Spirit. Paul modeled that. And that's every church, new church around the Mediterranean realizing that fruitfulness in the gospel work was theirs for the asking and they prayed fervently for it with Paul. I read stuff like this and it just kind of psychs me up to see and to think what is possible, what the potential of that is for us today. To see a movement within the church, even in Saskatoon, little old Saskatoon, to get to no place left in all of our city, in all of the world then where the gospel has not been preached and spread. Because as Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in every nation as a testimony, and then the end will come. Now, in many ways, Saskatoon, Canada, is in fact reached, isn't it? For sure, not everyone in your life network has responded to the gospel with faith yet. But the gospel is available on just about every street corner in buildings just like this all across our city, right? There's five Christian churches on this block alone. So someone did a great job, many someones did a great job since A.D. 65-ish till now to getting that job done, to getting us the gospel. From Spain across the North Atlantic Ocean to the Americas, some 1,400 years later, once here the church just grew, and then in the 1800s a missionary, missionary movements developed all over the place. And, uh, the Alliance was one of them. Canada and the United States then became the leading missionary senders in the world to the unreached, to the distant lands that have not yet heard Christ. So what would Paul say? I don't know what the stats are for other parts of the world or really even much for all of Canada, but Paul would say that there's no place, but would Paul say that there's no place left in Saskatoon or in the area cities for the gospel that's already been accomplished? Well, if you look at the demographics of Saskatoon, according to Stats Canada, 79% of Saskatoonians claim to be Christian. 40% are Protestant, 
32% Roman Catholic, 7% other. Now, that's a significant number of Christians in our city, isn't it? Now, we all know that when people are filling out demographic surveys and answering phone calls about it, it you know, it's kind of like, um, hey, honey, uh, what a religious affiliation are we? Uh, we're Christian. Okay. Uh, honey, are we Protestant or are we Catholic? Well, we're not Catholic. Okay, so Protestant then? Yes, Protestant. Okay, Protestant. I write that down. And so we're 40% Protestant in Saskatoon. So does that mean that we have 94,000 Christians in our city? Because that's how the math works out. I think we all know people in our life network who would do a survey like that and they'd claim that they were Christian on the survey. But they really have no intention of being real followers of Jesus as Savior and Lord. I think we all have people in our life network that we know don't know the gospel at all. But we also have people in our life network that are Hindus and Buddhists and, and Muslims. But we also have people who know that they aren't Muslims, Buddhists, and Hindus, and so they think they must be Christians. And there's people of all kinds of religious persuasions. There's even people in our life networks that are irreligious, meaning they have no religion. They're not interested. So think of it this way. How many real Christians does the average non-Christian in your life network have? Let me say that again. How many Christians do you think the average non-Christian in your life network has? Fun fact, I was 17 years old before I knew one born-again Christian. Before anyone ever had the guts to tell me they were a Christian, much less tell me about Jesus. How can someone in Saskatchewan, well, I was in Regina, sorry. I was Regina, Saskatchewan. How can someone go 17 years without knowing a single Christian? But I did. There had to have been Christians in my life network. There had to have been Christians in my neighborhood, in my school. But if there were, they were incognito. And they were pretty good at that. Would that be different today, do you think, some 39 years after my baptism? I think 94,000 Christians in Saskatoon, committed Christians, would be generous. But even if there are half that many, half that many Jesus-believing, Bible-loving, Spirit-filled Christians in Saskatoon, what should that look like for the gospel here? What should that look like for your life network? I don't know if I have any answers for that necessarily. I'm just trying to get us to think about it from Paul's perspective. To wrestle with his ambition. Now sure, Paul was an apostle. He was a kind of a super saint, right? But yeah, he did have a special calling from God. But one thing that we read him doing over and over and over again in his letters is he's calling the church to join him in his task to evangelize the nations. Romans 15, 20, and 30. It has always been in my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. And then he picks it up in verse 30 and he says, I urge you then, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, 
join me in my struggle by praying to God for me and with me. And Paul believed that the gospel is a shared task. The gospel is a shared... Why don't you say that with me? The gospel is a shared task. Verse 30, he urges the church in Rome to join him in his struggle. Paul struggled with it too, and he was a super saint. There were people like Paul, specially appointed and anointed by God to do what he did, for sure. But Paul also depended on other Christians who stayed behind after he left to continue doing what he did to share his ambition to get the gospel out to those who haven't heard. Paul was focused on an urban gospel, especially to Gentiles, but I'm sure he'd talk to anybody. He'd go into cities with his disciples, win people to Jesus, disciple them, gather churches around him, and then he would send them out into the smaller towns and villages in the area and the countryside to share the gospel to their friends and neighbors and to perfect strangers. Then, when the major cities were sufficiently reached, he'd move on and he'd leave the rest of the work for the churches that he'd established. Romans 15, 21 it says, as it is written, this is a prophecy from Isaiah 52, as it was written, those who were not told about him, that is Messiah, Jesus, will see, and those who have not heard will understand. And then he says in his letter to the Romans, verse 22, this is why, this is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. He couldn't leave to go visit his friends in Rome. Why? Because the number of people who had not yet heard of Jesus was still too many. He still had a work to do. Oh, friends, do we share the same ambition as Paul and those early churches for those who have still not heard? How did he know that enough was enough? Verse 23, but now that there is no place for me to work in these regions. In other words, when there were enough discipled people, people who knew how to carry on the work, then it was time for him to move on. Paul tracked the spread of the gospel through the number of disciples made and churches planted. See, disciples make more disciples. That's what Jesus told us. That's what Paul tells us. That's what we see in the New Testament, that disciples make disciples. That's what disciples do. Even when the missionary leaves the area, those first churches were committed to making reproducing disciples, Christians who could carry on the task of getting the gospel to those who have not yet heard in their life networks. Paul knew this worked because they were doing it everywhere he went. And he just empowered them and said, go do it. And it continued. Paul knew this worked. And this is how Paul, this is how missionaries like Paul still today train and reproduce disciples. You'll see it up in this little graphic here. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. It says, and these things you have heard me say. This is Paul saying to his disciple Timothy. Saying, these things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses. Now entrust them to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. And you can see the transfer and the exponential growth of reproducing more disciples. Disciples who make disciples, who make even more disciples, generations deep, is how the gospel spread so rapidly throughout the world then. A method, I might add, that brought the gospel to you and to me. 
Well, friends, we are 200 people strong here at Lawson Alliance. We live in a city of about 300,000 people, like Ephesus back in that day. But we have about 94,000 Christians citywide. We have nine Alliance churches in this city and surrounding towns with, with, a, with about a 2,000 people shared attendance just in Alliance churches. Can you see the potential? Can you see the potential if we would all embrace Paul's method of making disciples and his ambition to get the gospel word is not yet known? Potential number one. Every Christian's Life Network could get a fresh opportunity this next year to hear about the gift of salvation in Jesus until there is no place left where the gospel has not yet been heard if we grabbed onto this ambition. Potential number two. Every church becomes a real intentional about organizing and strategizing its members to support our existing missionaries that are in other cultures and other nations. Potential number three, if every church becomes real intentional about identifying and training and sending out new missionaries to go into new fields overseas, even hard-to-reach areas, we could see the gospel of the kingdom reach the ends of the earth in our lifetime. And for sure, our city. Because this is the conclusion of the matter, my friends. We aren't finished yet. We ain't done yet. There's still work to be done, places to go, people to save. Am I right? For Christ's sake, we must share the ambition of Paul in that first century church to get to no place left. And we got to understand that we won't get there unless we aim to make our discipleship about more than just Bible studies and small groups. They have to be Bible studies and small groups that reproduce new disciples who can make more disciples. And we aim to get every ordinary believer to no place left in their own life network. Paul says in Romans 10, though, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's great. We celebrate that. We triumph that. But, he says in verse 14, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching or telling them the gospel? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? How can they preach unless they are sent As it is written, beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. If no one's told you lately that your feet are beautiful, now would be the time to get a spiritual pedicure and get intentional about these things. I told you earlier about the day that my wife Bonnie had uh, at home because of shortages of work. She spent the day busily tackling those things that she felt had been neglected for a long time. Sometimes life gets busy, doesn't it? But let's be honest. We busy our lives with unimportant things, don't we? You know I'm not just talking about cleaning windows and baking banana bread. Those are important to husbands, that's for sure. But because of that busyness in unimportant things real important things, eternally important things go undone. And don't confuse what I'm saying here this morning. Sometimes we confuse urgency with guilt. Guilt can be a powerful motivator. 
But that's not what Paul is trying to do here to motivate the church in Rome. And neither am I trying to use guilt to motivate you or even myself. The urgency in the day in the life of a missionary like Heather Hahn or in Mexico or Keith and Melanie Hansel working in Niger in, in, with the Fulani people isn't reserved for those who are brave enough or serious enough about their religion or, or gifted enough to go overseas. Paul speaks to regular people in the pew of the churches in every city and town and village between Jerusalem and Rome. And he calls for a partnership to pursue this holy ambition of getting to no place left with him for the gospel, for the glory of God. So here's a thought. What if, what if you said, okay, I'm in. I'm in. What if we formed a team here at Lawson that got together regularly to pray and plan and figure out how we can get to no place left, how we can take that no place left ambition and the supernatural potential that we have as Christ Church to actually do the work? What if we figured out as a team how to help our missionaries as best as we can from here so that they, know, they will know that they are loved and supported back home with more than just our pennies and our prayers, though those things are important still. Give to the global advance, please. What if we train people here at Lawson to be so equipped with the gospel that within their own life networks, they could reach no place left? What if Heather, as Heather and Han and I were talking about her new role in Mexico, what if we train people, people just like you, to join up with her in Mexico and missionaries like her in other countries to help them out on the field if we got so equipped that we could go out there and actually be of use more than just painting buildings and digging outhouses. We can do this, guys. We really can because we have the same Holy Spirit within us that Paul had working within him. But you have to say, okay, I'm in. You just have to say it. And one way that you can start by saying that, two ways actually. One, sign up at the Welcome Center for our missions team. Two, become a member here. Join our ministry partnership so that we can unitedly say, I'm in. And I'm working towards no place left with all of us. If Paul can get to no place left in four nations in 20 years, certainly with all the resources we have at our disposal today, we can certainly help finish the task. So, what do you say? Are you in? Will you set aside the busy, unimportant things of your schedule and your life and sign up at the Welcome Center to join this brand new missions team? Will you say, I'm in and become a member here? In the lobby today as you leave, uh, the chairman of our board, um, Vince Wiegers, will be out there and he'll be taking signatures. Find him. He's the guy here with glasses. Folks, come on already. We're not done yet, right? We're not done yet. So let's keep working God's harvest fields. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are what? Few. So let's get into the harvest fields. Father, your word is your word. And not only have you given us instruction in your word, 
You've given us your great and precious promises, and they are always yes and amen, as the Scripture says. And you love your people, and you want to increase the abundance of your house. You want to see more people come into a saving relationship with Jesus. And Lord, we want that too. Lord, as we look over our life network, we are burdened for the lack of interest there seems to be for Christian things. But Lord, may we never peddle Christian things. May we preach Jesus. May we make Jesus the important topic of our everyday conversations everywhere we go until we see no place left become the reality of our life networks. Help us, Lord, as a church to partner with our missionaries everywhere to really help them, to, to really sacrificially give and pray and to also go out to them and to help them and to be a blessing to them. There are way, many ways that we cannot even talk about in, in public that we can help the church. But Lord, your church is growing. It's expanding. It's coming to the end of days, Lord, when your gospel will reach the ends of the earth. And I pray, and I hope my sisters and brothers here will pray with me, that, Lord, we want to be a part of that. We want to hear at the end of the age, not just, well done, my good and faithful servant, but you brought home the king. Lord, let that be our treasure. Let that be our crown. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>